Hey, welcome to the Ron Johnson Discipleship Podcast. We're excited today to join you and for you to join us as we talk about an important uh, topic, the topic of morality and why some nations and why some people are more corrupt than others. And I can't, but you talk about, I always say this, this podcast is about as relevant as can be because we're talking about uh, a Christian worldview and applying the, the elements of a Christian worldview to what we're seeing going on in our culture today. And especially uh, those of you that are watching, we just had the, the Durham report come out and basically say that the FBI, the Department of Justice, uh, both uh, working with corrupt politicians to uh, to, to uh, use these uh, agencies in an ungodly corrupt way to attack somebody's character and really to, to impact a national election. These are serious things. This makes Watergate look like a child's play. Yep. And, uh, and we're talking about, you know, the, the term the swamp came out, you know, draining the swamp. Uh, I certainly had no idea the depth of corruption uh, in our government and, uh, and in a lot of our institutions that we have trusted. You know, when you talk about the Justice Department, I mean, the, the name itself causes you to want to pause and cross your heart and, you know, have a sense of reverence and awe. Um, all of these, uh, including mainstream media, uh, including uh, Fauci and, uh, and uh, the, the World Health Organization, I mean, every major organization on the planet uh, has been tainted by corruption. And I don't know about you, but I think the average American, we're looking right now at a border crisis. We're, we're seeing all kinds of lying and cheating and, and, uh, and, and stuff taking place down there. Uh, the government not fulfilling its most basic uh, assignment. We're looking right. at a debt crisis yeah. uh, that we've never experienced uh, in America like this. Um, and it just seems like we've we've got corrupt people for the most part uh, making decisions in our country right now. Yeah, and then for those who say, you know what, uh, it's corruption, it's just bound to happen, you know, it is what it is. Well, here's the issue: people don't understand the the direct relationship between corruption and poverty. So you think it doesn't affect you right now? It's all the way in Washington D.C. Oh, it's just Donald Trump, man. He sends mean tweets anyway. So what's the big deal? Well, you don't understand that at this massive scale corruption, the system cannot sustain itself. Right. It will fall apart. You know, look at what's happening across the border and what's going on in the state of Illinois. Why are so many people coming to Indiana? And I think one word will summarize it is corruption. Yeah. Um, all the stories I've heard just even recently, uh, it just it, it connect the dots. Corruption, and this book does it in this chapter, which is titled Morality. Yep. Um, why are some less corrupt? Yep. He, he makes a, a very direct tie between the presence of corruption and poverty and why nations stay impoverished, not because there's no resource coming in from the outside, not because people are not, the people there are not smart or have giftings and ability. It's a systematic corruption that keeps people poor. Yep. And, you know, he makes a, a connection between the, the economic value of something called trust. Yeah. You know, trust is rooted in morality. Trust is rooted in integrity. It, it, it's when a person does what they say they're going to do. It's when a person is honest. And, and when you have trust in a culture, uh, it creates the environment for healthy you know, business to take place. Yep. Uh, when trust is not there, though, and when mistrust and corruption fill the gap, that's when you have all kinds of, of serious troubles. Now, I, I love the fact, again, that he brings out these amazing uh, 
cultural perspectives or cross-cultural perspectives. So he talks, in the, he opens up this chapter. And again, if you're wondering what chapter we're talking about, we've been, we've been modeling our podcast uh, going chapter by chapter through this book called The Book That Made Your World. And I encourage you to pick up a copy and read it. It's, to me, it's one of the best books I've ever read in, in my lifetime uh, as it relates to understanding biblical worldview. But he talks about uh, what I call the parable of the milk. Let's, mm-hmm. let's walk through this together. He says in Holland, there was a place where there was like a hundred cows and no humans. It was a milk and dairy farm. Everything was automated. The cows would, would walk in, the, the, the machines would milk the cows, the, the milk would go into a, uh, a boiler, uh, which purified the milk, and then you or I could walk in, put our money in a, you know, in a tray, fill up our milk container, and walk away, and there was zero human interaction. It was all based on trust. You, you got the m- amount of milk that you needed. You paid for the milk. You, if you needed a change, you reached into the, the pot and you got yourself change. And everything happened because we simply trusted our neighbor. Yeah, it's a system called the honor system. <laughs> yeah. But there's an inf- So we, we use that word honor system, right? We didn't realize there is a biblical infrastructure that allows the honor system to happen, that we, we, which he let. We almost take it for granted, right? But, but he lays out the, uh, the biblical foundation so for us to even have an honor system. Exactly. But, but that system they talked about, from a business standpoint, is a gold mine. It's a gold mine. Because yeah. he shares what happens if you don't have trust. Yeah, let's right? talk about that. So, so he says, you know, his Indian friend laughed and he said, well, first of all, uh, if this was happening in, an, in the continent of India, yeah. uh, you would have people stealing the cows and stealing the money. Yeah. And so the, the issue came up, well, you would need to have a cashier there. Somebody needs to handle right. the transaction. So you're paying for someone else. So now we got to pay so the, the cashier. So the, the price of milk goes up. But right. then, but then we—who's going to hold the cashier responsible? Right. So, so now we have to have somebody inspecting the cashier. Right. Uh, but who's going to make sure that the milk is is good? That it's not being uh, you know added water right. to it he, to thin I, it out. Apparently, that's a real thing that happens in India. That the 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 owner of the farm says, "Well, they're cheating, so why shouldn't I be cheating?" So yeah. I'm putting water to dilute the milk. So then the government needs to hire inspectors to come to make suspect the milk. Who's paying for the inspectors? The consumer is paying for the inspector, and, and, right? And then who? And then who, how are we going to hold the inspector accountable? Yep. Because you got creating the because I can bribe the inspector. Yeah, yep. And this is this is what happens, as you said, when when we just simply lack integrity. Yep. Uh, we have to have layers and layers and layers of people inspecting and all this, and it 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 goes on ad infinitum, right? Because there's always somebody in charge of inspecting the inspector. But the point is, and you bring it out. The point is, every layer adds more money to it, and before you know it, nobody can afford the milk. Yep. And the whole system just implodes. And you think about, you know, from a business standpoint, if, you, if I'm a business owner or entrepreneur, I want to start a thriving business, a profitable business that's going to bless the community, that's going to, uh, you know, be profitable for me. I look at this place, I'm like, wait, how many layers of bureaucracy and how many handout, how many bribes do I, got need, I need to hand out before I can even get a permit to be able to do this and that and that? I'm going down the street. I'm going to go to Indiana where, you know, or wherever else that doesn't have as many permits and corruptions to start my own entrepreneur business because this this place is unsustainable for for a thriving business. Absolutely. So he asked the question, why why is why is it like this in Holland? Yeah. But it's not like this in so many other countries of the world. And it's a great question. And yep. and he goes back and basically says uh, that the empirical data 
demonstrates that countries most influenced by the Bible are the least corrupt. Now, let's connect some dots there. So what does the Bible have to do with creating integrity and honesty in the marketplace? I mean, yeah. what's the connection between reading the Bible and having you know, an, an economic environment that's rooted in trust? Right. Good question. Good question, yeah. So he's, he goes back and says, well, what does the Bible teach? Well, first of all, the Bible teaches that there's a God who's watching. And so while there might not be an inspector there or a cashier there, there's a God who's watching you and who knows whether you're stealing or not. He also says, you know, the Bible teaches there's going to be a judgment coming. And, and every one of us will stand before God and give an account for the way we've lived our lives. And so there was the fear of the Lord and a recognition that I might be able to, to lie to you, cheat you, uh, swindle you, and you might not know it. But God knows it and God sees it. And, and it matters. And even if you're not caught in this life, you will pay for it in the next life. Yeah. I mean, these are, these are biblical doctrines that were embedded into the people of Holland and in other Christian countries that read the Bible and practiced the Bible. And these are just a few, you know, examples. Um, the Heidelberg Catechism, I want to I get into that. I thought this was absolutely incredible, the depth. You know, the, and again, catechisms are for teaching children, uh, teaching children the faith. When you look at the Heidelberg Catechism, this was, this was again, uh, the 16th century Reformation. Uh, he, he talks, for instance, about the, the commandment, thou shalt not steal. So here's the question. Question number 110. What does God forbid in the Eighth Commandment, thou shalt not steal? Here's the answer. God forbids not only those thefts and robberies that are punishable by the courts, but he includes under the name of stealing all deceitful tricks and devices whereby we design to appropriate ourselves anything belonging to our neighbor, whether it be by force or under the appearance of right, as by unjust weights, inaccurate measurements, false reckoning of time spent in service, fraudulent merchandise, false coins, exorbitant interest, or by any other means forbidden by God. God is forbidding covetousness as well as all the abuse as waste of person's gifts. Wow. Now, that was just a... And the answer to what does the Eighth Commandment teach? And it goes far beyond just don't steal. Because we can steal, again, by lying about how much time we, we actually worked and we, give, we put on eight hours when we only work six hours. Yep. Uh, or we deceive people in a variety of ways. The point was children needed to be able to explain and expound upon what this meant. So now they're going, oh, wow, I need to be, if, if somebody asked me, did I do my homework, I need to be able to say, yes, I did. Otherwise, I'm, I'm breaking the Eighth Commandment. And then it followed up with this question. By what does God require this commandment? Here's the answer, that I seek the advantage of my neighbor rather than my own every instance I can, and I deal with my neighbor as I desire to be dealt with by others. Further, I faithfully labor and generously give so that I may be able to care for the hurting and relieve the needy. This is amazing. So he's saying the foundation of the Eighth Commandment is Treat other people the way you would want to be treated. In fact, look out for their welfare. Look out for their benefit. Seek to bless them. And that the goal of my prophet was not just to take care of me. The goal of my prophet was to take care of people less fortunate and hurting and needy. And so this, this was just one commandment that was expounded, that every little kid needed to be able to explain that. And it, when this was systematically instilled <laughs> into the next generation, and when people actually knew the truth, 
and practice the truth and had a fear, a healthy fear of the Lord and a reverence for God. This led to, to, to where you don't need to have any people at the milk plant because we just trusted one another and we did what was right. right. Compare that with what's going on in most of the nations today, including America today, which is right. becoming largely biblically illiterate, and we wonder why we're having the corruption problem that we have. Well, that, this is mind-boggling to me because, you know, even talking to the liberal elites, they will say corruption is bad, right? Nepotism is bad. Bribes are bad. They will at least admit that, right? <coughs> but just from a, 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 a logical, rational standpoint, you, you're saying, well, what is the massive way, what is the large-scale way to be able to stop corruption? Because in the, the day, you, you don't have enough agents to micromanage because those agents need to be managed, right? It's not just about control. It's not just about increasing bureaucracy, which is basically how we've been trying to stop corruption, but the bureaucrats get corrupt and whatnot. Really, it's a, it's a worldview building. And what is the most appropriate worldview um, to prevent corruption is a worldview that there is a higher power, there's internal judgment. Yep. So you, if, you, if you just have utilitarian approach, no, life is just about, you know, meaning and morality is whatever you choose it to be, right? right. Which is kind of like the postmodern view. Then, then naturally that's going to lend to corruption, right? What, it, what doesn't lend to corruption is a objective, ethereal, transcendent force that watches over you and sees that everything you do, and then one day you're accountable for You could be a billionaire on earth, but one day you're going to be accountable before this almighty being. That's the best worldview to prevent corruption. I think that's, everyone can understand that. But no one's saying these things, which boggles my mind because they hate Christianity so much they're, they're, they'll risk corruption because they don't want internal judgment or well, accountability. Well, we talked about it, it, it. Most Americans believe that the election was stolen. We'll just say that right out loud. It was corrupt. And we have video evidence and we have people cheating. It's all over the social media. Video evidence. Um, but why would you cheat to get elected? Because if at the end of the day, all you have is power and all that matters is, right. is you and you're your own God, you'll, you'll have all kinds of corruption. You'll do anything imaginable Egypt. to get elected. And again, this is not a just I'm not picking on Democrats or Republicans. Both both parties have become a, to a large degree corrupt. Well, look at the Durham report. You just talked. OK. What are going to be the consequences? I mean, this is corruption on such a massive scale. Yeah, this is, is a, let's, let's, let's harp on this just for a minute. Yeah. This is, to me, the most concerning thing imaginable. Where is accountability? There, the, uh, and there's not because it's a power-driven system right now. And, and every, all the judges and all, this, all, the, all the politicians, they, have the, they are somehow dirty involved in this. So if you get this exposed, I get exposed. And, and on this scale of corruption... How do you clean this up when everyone's corrupt? The police is police yep. in this case. The Justice Department, the FBI is involved. In this case, the <clears throat> FBI, who should be investigating, is implicated. So, so what you happened have with the, the head of the police? FBI, yep. you have Hillary Clinton, you had Barack Obama. All of these people knew that this was a bunch of baloney. Right. And yet this went on for years. It's a soft coup on the elected president of the United States. Right? And it was all about an election. Um, and all about defamation. And we heard this over and over. What about Donald the, Trump. What about yeah. the media? The yep. media spewing these lies Everybody's over and over. Everybody's in over on again. this. So when the police chief himself, if figuratively in this case, yep. is himself implicated, where is the accountability going to come from, right? This is where if you don't believe in the God, you just say, well, we're in power. We got the biggest club. We're going to do whatever it takes. It right? used to be the people on both sides of the aisle 
cared about justice. Right. I mean, at least we agreed that you can't lie and cheat and steal and break the rules. You can't lie about somebody's character. You can't frame somebody. I mean, what's going on with this situation makes the, the Nixon, you know, Watergate thing look like child's play. Yep. I mean, the, the corruption here is far more uh, invasive. I mean, it's unbelievable. But the, the issue again becomes if the Justice Department can't even maintain justice, I mean, has no definition of justice, where are we as a nation? I mean, why should someone not break the law? Why should someone not cheat on their taxes? And when who, the yeah. Justice Department is openly breaking whatever, you know? And, and again, yeah. this, I think most Americans are deeply concerned. You know, the, the federal government's job is to protect our border. That, that's clearly defined in the Constitution. We have an invasion happening yep. right now. And who, who's going to be held accountable for this? You know, we, we have, I saw a video where, where our agents are opening the gates and letting people in against the law. Yeah. Uh, just like we saw the whole J January 6th, quote, resurrection. Insurrection. Uh, insurrection, yeah. yes. What a joke that is. Yeah. Um, I mean, the whole thing is full of corruption from, from head to toe. There's, so, there's so, so many people that should be in jail. And the question becomes, will anybody serve? Will justice be served? Right. You know, that's the question, the $100,000 question. Now, the beautiful part about this, and you and I chatted about this. Yeah, before we go too dark. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Is that this has happened before. Yes, yeah. Uh, and the author points out uh, England before and after Wesley. And there, there is a great book. I'm going to do another book review here. Uh a book called England Before and After Wesley, <laughs> The Evangelical Revival and Social Reform. And this is very important. Again, I, I always challenge our listeners, don't be ignorant of history because history provides perspective. And the testimony of a previous generation is something that says, you know what, here's what God did in an earlier generation. If God did it once, God can do it again. So this should be hopeful for us. But, but England was in a terrible, terrible time before Wesley and Whitfield. And let's talk a little bit about that. You know, there was a political attack on the... I I'm going to put it in our language. A, a political attack on the conservative Bible-preaching pulpits mm. of Britain, all right? Uh, the nonconformist pulpits that were... The reason they were nonconformist is they were rejecting the cold, dead, formal religion of the time, and they were preaching the gospel, and they were persecuted for it. So we had uh, the Puritan pulpit in Britain was attacked, and people could not practice church. They could not have open church. They were persecuted. So many of them still had underground churches or whatever. But the point is this, the, the prophetic voice of the nation was silenced in Britain. Mm -hmm. And when you lose the pulpit, and you lose a prophetic pulpit, and you lose the, the, the pastors who are putting the plumb line of God's truth for the people, speaking, speaking to power, you lose the voice of the Holy Spirit in that generation. And that's largely what happened. And so, we, and then we talk about who, who was in the pulpit. The people in the pulpit were pathetic. Uh, they were not preaching the gospel. In fact, I've got a, uh, I got a good quote here from, uh, from Whitfield about what the pulpits were like in his day. Um, it says in 1662, nearly 2,000 Christian ministers were ejected from their homes and pulpits for not submitting to the Act of Uniformity. Recently passed legislation requiring the strict use of prescribed rites and ceremonies. Many of these ministers were jailed and forbidden to preach. One of them was John Bunyan. Uh, but he says it, what was amazing is while those men were in prison, they were preach, they were praying for awakening. And I believe that Wesley and Whitfield were part of the answers to these Puritan 
pastor's prayers. But a man by the name of Bishop Ryle describes the tragic condition of the clergy in 18th century England. He says the vast majority of them were sunk in worldliness and neither knew nor cared anything about their profession. They hunted, they shot, they farmed, they swore, they drank, they gambled. They seemed determined to know everything except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And this book, um, Wesley before, I mean, England before and after Wesley, goes into great depth about just the, the carnality of the pulpit and the perversion, the debauchery that was in the pulpit. So you got a, you got a, a pulpit like that. You could imagine what the politicians were like. Um, they were even worse. We have deism that became the theology of the land, which, of course, deism says God created everything and then just left it to run on its own. Right. Um, dishonesty was fortified by more dishonesty, and he makes the comment that corruption spread like cancer. What they saw was this massive divide forming in Britain between the rich and the poor. I think we see that happening in American culture yep. right now. Elitist, of, the it, elitist class who thinks they're better than everyone else. Yeah. Ab above the rules. <laughs> yep. uh, they do whatever they we want. We have all kinds of insider trading that's taking place. <clears throat> we have greed, mm -hmm. uh, the haves and the have-nots. It's the same thing that happened in, in Great Britain. Now, this is interesting because uh, what you find pleasure in reveals a lot about the state of your soul. You know, if I told you, oh, I love to torture small animals or something like that, you'd look at me like, you're a sick person. And yes, mm -hmm. I would be a sick person. What you find pleasure in reveals the condition of your, of your soul. So what's going on in Great Britain at the time? Well, they're hanging children for committing the most minuscule of crimes, and they had hanging shows. This was public. They would right. invite people out for enjoyment to watch somebody be hung yeah. a lot, you know, murdered. Um, we talk about child, uh, child abuse and, uh, and mortality. I wanted to read a quote here in the book that was amazing. Um, Between 1730 and 1750, three out of every four children born to all classes died before their fifth birthday. Wow. Three out of every four kids dead by the age of five. This is crazy. Just from neglect, from abuse, from a lack of protection, a lack of covering, overworking. Um, we talked about the gin age where everybody was, most of England spent their days drunk. Yeah. I mean, from morning, noon, and night. And you can imagine what happens when you have people who are committed to drunkenness. Called it the curse of national drunkenness. And so we had all kinds of stuff going on in the culture. And they gave some amazing statistics in the book, too, about the amount of alcohol that was consumed. That's in this book here. Um, this was interesting. Again, I'm looking at parallels between what's going on in mm -hmm. American culture today. Let's talk a little bit about the perverted perception of sport. Mm. How about things like cockfighting, uh, animal baiting? They would, yeah. they would uh, attach fireworks uh, to animals and light the fireworks, have the fireworks blow up. and, and uh, cruelty. Uh, finding pleasure blood in sports. cruelty. Yeah. Blood sports. How about this one? I'm looking at all this MMA stuff going on today where uh, we have, have women in, involved in beating the daylights out of each other too. In their day, uh, it was bare-fisted fighting mm -hmm. uh, where people would, again, you'd have blood everywhere and people would be severely damaged. Now we have small gloves on that co cover your knuckles, but it's, it, again, it's very brutal. Some people love it, but it's very, very brutal, mm -hmm. very, very bloody. Uh, broken bones. We have women beating the daylights out of each other for fun. This is all viewed as pleasure. Um, promiscuity becoming a sport. Uh, I was just reading, what's that? What's the name of that uh, 
online. Um, I can't think of, but there's three million women that have accounts open that are basically porn or soft porn accounts where they take pictures of themselves and their bodies and put it on uh, Instagram, Facebook. Uh, well, <laughs> it's, on, it's on the. It's not on that because it's pornographic. But it's uh, I can't even think of the name. But basically, we're we're raising up a whole generation of young girls who are prostituting themselves on social and media. And you they, give they them money it, for they it. They call it content creator. But right, they, right, and they they're incentivized because they make a lot of money from it. Yeah. For, right. And, and men will watch it. Yeah, uh, we have gambling that was happening again. Gambling is almost viewed even yeah. even among church folks today as ah, it's not big of a deal. Gambling was an epidemic in the culture, and mm-hmm. the reason gambling is is uh, forbidden in Scripture or or sh- should be for looked down upon by Christians is because it's is a waste of the resources God has entrusted you with. It is looking for gain with nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a sport. Um, lawlessness. Uh, let's talk about lawlessness. My goodness. You watch on social media these people running into retail stores and filling up bags of stuff, and there, and there's no one stopping them. There's no policing of them. In fact, I've seen employees fired for trying to stop people from stealing from the store. Mm-hmm. So we're actually encouraging lawlessness. And um, I think in the, in the Chicago area, from what I last heard, all of the Walmart stores are leaving. Because there's no way they can do business. People walk in and walk out and steal stuff at will. They walk through the store eating food, yeah. taking pictures of themselves, eating food that they haven't paid for, um, beating people up in the subways. We have situations like yeah. that happening all the time now. Gang violence. Uh, uh, it's just lawlessness is increasing. This is what was happening in Great Britain. There was lawlessness everywhere. It was not even safe to go out at night. Right. And... Um, and again, so we have this horrific, horrific situation. We, got, we have, you know, when I talked about uh, promiscuity as a sport, we had all, in the upper classes, it was all of these uh, uh, balls and stuff, masquerade balls, where it was basically just orgies, you mm-hmm. know? Uh, and so we have public morality at an all-time low, greed. Of course, when I mean, we talked about the slave trade yeah. and everything else that was going on, all of this rooted in just raw greed and materialism. Public corruption, governmental corruption on every level. And this, and this, yeah. this, this, in an, into this environment, we have people like um, the Wesleys. We have people like George Whitfield. We've got uh, the Booths, William Booth, founder of Salvation Army. We have an incredible. Uh, uh, we have our, my, our favorite William Wilberforce, who is trying to battle all this corruption uh, before the Parliament. Uh, but we have these courageous people. Let me just say this: evangelicals. The, yeah. These were not just nice people with looking for a cause. Uh, Ninety-nine out of a hundred of all these movements that were that, that arose arose from Bible-believing, godly people who were committed to seeing Reformation take place in their nation. Yeah. Um, and we should probably talk a little bit about the, the impact of Wesley and, and Whitfield and some of these folks. Um, this is crazy. This is, this is Wesley. Beginning at age 36 as an itinerant preacher, he traveled 250,000 miles on horseback and preached more than 40,000 sermons to crowds as large as 20,000 people. Think about that. 250,000 miles on horseback. He was known as the father of the religious paperback. He published about 5,000 sermons, tracts, and pamphlets. And he was he, an intellectual. He wasn't just like a preacher. He was an intellectual. He's he's studied. He's very very smart. Yeah. Yes, yes. And as we pointed out, he he. And this is, I think, a challenge for us because you and I we we can get a little agitated with all the stuff on social media. But you know, 
it happened to Whitfield and to Wesley. Rocks, when they would be out preaching, rocks would be thrown at them. They were reviled by the religious establishment. Yeah. Uh, they were called wackos, fanatics, uh, called, they were demonized. This was the church demonized mm-hmm. them because of their unconventional outdoor practices. Uh, but they would have dead animals thrown at them. They'd get hit in the head or hit in the face. They cattle with... and cows into their meetings oh, yeah. to disrupt the meetings. Oh, yeah. All, everything imaginable, uh, thrown egg, rotten eggs thrown at them. But uh, the, Wesley and Whitfield would stay there preaching with blood running down their face from the wounds they received and still ministering the gospel yeah. and God moving you know, with great power and great authority and, and, and saving people. And that, that, I guess, was the point of all this, was that Wesley believed that change came from the inside out and that when a man was truly born again, his behavior changed, his desires changed, his passions changed. Uh, and he saw <coughs> reformation coming from transformation in the human heart. Can I kind of read this part? Yeah. He believed that the main purpose of the Bible is to show sinners their way back to God by sacrifice of Christ. That's why he preached. <coughs> Excuse me. But he also understood that social change are the inevitable byproduct and the useful piece of evidence of conversion. Yes. That's a key. <clears throat> you can't have huge rallies, bunch of people coming to your churches, and you're like, oh, we're doing all that stuff, and there's no social change happening in your city because that's the true, to me, the true evidence of the conversion of the gospel is social change on a large scale in your city or in your community. Yeah, that's why you know when you look at Whitfield and and Wesley uh, and Edwards and and so many of the the great reformers, um, uh, they understood, like what you just said, you, you yeah. cannot have change on the inside that does not lead to societal change. And so, with every great revival, there were all of these societies that were raised up to address certain yep. things. I mean, the Sunday school movement came out of, of men and women of God look, walking the streets and seeing all this devastation among the children and going, you know what? We've got to do something about this. And their solution was to teach these kids uh, in a healthy, warm, loving environment uh, where their needs were met, right? Mm-hmm. They, they fed them, they cared for them, they clothed them, and then they taught them the scriptures. And... Um, and they began systematically changing. Same thing with, with the Booths and the Salvation Army. They addressed drunkenness. They addressed the, the problem of fatherlessness. They addressed the breakdown of the family. Um, they, they put men in small groups and began to disciple them and teach them the ways of the Lord. But all of it came after, this was not just head knowledge, all of it came after a heart transformation that led to a change in behavior. So you know what, if you're a Christian, you're not going out doing the gambling stuff. You're not involved in promiscuity. You're not involved in drunkenness. You're not living a lifestyle. You're living a different life. They called them out of darkness, and they called them into light. Yeah. Uh, and all of these organizations sprung up that, that, you know, God would touch maybe you because you had a heart for kids. God touched me uh, in the area of government. God would touch somebody else in uh, the area of drunkenness or whatever it was. Um, and all these ministries started springing up uh, as the Holy Spirit started touching different people. All of them were rooted, though, in just what you mentioned, in the belief that Jesus Christ has to transform the human heart. And once that heart's transformed, society can be transformed. I'm going to read one more thing. He preached heaven, but he believed that nature was God's gift to us. This is in, in, in continuation of the thing from this book. And therefore, work was noble and science was essential. So, so this guy was a renaissance man. I mean, he wasn't just like a preacher. He was an intellectual. He was a theologian. But he, he had interest in science and work and business and, and, and charities. I mean, he did it all. 
See, to me, the biggest difference, why? Let's compare Wesley to all the mega church or the, the, the spiritual personality we see here today. Here's the big difference. Wesley was, re, was hated for the first few decades of his life. Oh, yeah. And the last decade of his life, he was celebrated when well, he was in his 80s. Yep, it's but true first, But in the beginning, man, he kept humble. He lived like a normal guy. They talked about how, much, how little money he spent on himself. Yep. He didn't have an entourage. I mean, he had a follower with him, but it wasn't like an entourage. He, it never got into his head because he was humble the whole time by people hating him and trying to kill him. That's what caused him to be such a powerful force. I, I love this quote. He, talking about Wesley. He <clears throat> left behind one well-worn coat, two silver teaspoons, and the Methodist church. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when he died, his will was pay five, six poor person without a job, give him like a whatever allowance money, and allow those six guys to carry his body and bury him. And that's was, that was his will. Unceremonial. But he left an entire movement. But he left the movement. He changed England. And, and many, he changed World War, William Wilberforce. He helped change America's yeah. you know, when revival. You have, when you have books called Before and After Wesley, yep. uh, it, it really highlights the impact that one man or woman deeply committed and submitted to Christ, the impact that that person can have. But you bring up a good point. Uh, he was, I mean, when this in this book, uh, England Before and After Wesley, there, there are quotes from the religious establishment at the time when Wesley was preaching. They were his worst critics, was the church. People, they said, don't go to his meetings, it will send you to hell. They called him yeah. everything, they, everything but the devil himself. Uh, so the church vilified him. When you look at Wilberforce and he tries to make a stand for righteousness, the entire political establishment just mocked and ridiculed him and, 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 and vilified him. So I think you bring up a good point. You know, it takes guts. Like, we're living in a time now when if you speak up against the things that everybody's pushing, um, you're going to be vilified. And they're going to call you everything. They will try to destroy you. We saw this happen when Trump tried to, quote, drain the swamp, right? Uh, every... Every means of government was unified against him. Yeah. And, uh, and you and I talked about this before. You know, and again, he's far from a perfect person. But when you look at the one person who has been attacked from day one by everybody imaginable, it makes you wonder, what does this guy know? And what does this guy have the power to do in terms of dismantling Why are they the so afraid court? of him yeah, why that are... they're going to go after everything? I mean, this, this this is not rocket science. You don't have to be a genius to look at the situation and see what's going on in our, our political landscape today. Yeah, and we're not trying to put him up on some pedestal as if he's a perfect man. He's not. We know that. Um, but he has exposed a lot of this uh, deeply Certainly for me. Corruption. Absolutely. Absolutely. He's opened my eyes. But, but, but going back to Wesley, I mean... That's why like, I, I compare him to all your Christian phenomenons that, that kind of pop out and everyone's like, oh, social media, darling, whatever. Wesley was not looking for all those things. He had a true call in his life, and his, he followed his call. That God's called him to his, his desire, his satisfaction was to call God. It wasn't the pleasure of man. Now, it came at his like last decade, his 70s and 80s, when they, he said he was the most popular person in England. But he didn't care for any of that because for the first 30 years, he was he was hated by everybody. He didn't care because he well, was there and, to please the Lord. And William Booth was despised in his early days. Right. And then when he died, all of England came out to yeah. celebrate this man's life. Right. So... Um, that's the way it is, isn't yep. it? Uh, I mean, look at Jesus during his lifetime. Right. Uh, and now look at the movement that, that is spread across the planet, you know, uh, because of Jesus willing to 
to take all, take it all on and be crucified and die. You know, there's a, there's a sacrifice, there's a price to pay. And I, I just want to highlight too, you know, it, it was devout clergy. It, it was men and women of God who stood uh, up for righteousness, and especially men of God in the pulpits uh, that were largely <laughs> responsible for calling Britain to repentance and, uh, and for leading these great revival movements. Um, also, a guy named Charles Simeon uh, that he mentions in the book who uh, began going after these Ivy League schools that were established for the glory of God and mm-hmm. bringing Reformation to the university uh, level. And so um, we just need more firebrands like this, men and women who know what they believe and then are willing to stand and take the heat for what they believe. Um, and boy, we, we need it now because we are certainly living in a great parallel. You know, we've talked about this on this podcast, not only a parallel between Great Britain, but we can go all the way back and look at a parallel between the church during um, Hitler's rise to power in Germany. Uh, a church is asleep, a church is carnal, a church is going through the motions. Um, and God help us, may we never be that kind of church. So, but, but, but the bright side is this, and I've, I've shared this before, if God's done it once, God can do it again. If God can raise up an Arminian and a Calvinist, Arminian, yeah. John Wesley, and the Calvinist, George Whitfield, and have them together uh, preach the gospel and see an entire continent, and really multiple continents, because America experienced the overflow Absolutely. of that move as well. Uh, so uh, England would not be what it is today, and England needs another revival, and America would not be where we are today, and we need another revival, and I think the time is ripe. So Lord, help us, and, and may you bring revival in our day. And I know, I, you know, I were just talking, but I'm really praying in this season of our lives at Living Stones, you know, Lord, what's the next assignment as it relates to me as a senior leader, as it relates to our ministries, as it relates to the time in which we're living, the darkness, the deep darkness that's all around us? Um, God, what do you want us to do? What is our re- courageous response to the, to the dark days in which we find ourselves? So uh, let, let's pray. I think it's fitting that we pray today uh, just for America and, uh, and for repentance. So Lord, uh, thank you for chapters like this that remind us of the great things that you are able and willing to do if you just find a church in agreement with you and a church that has the courage to stand. God, restore the fire to the pulpits in America again. God, restore the fire in me and restore the fire in us. Lord, here at Living Stones, God, we're crying out for wisdom in the day, in dark days in which we're living today, days full of corruption, full of conversion, uh, perversion, full of greed. Uh, Lord, help us to, uh, to understand the times in which we live and to know what to do and give us the courage to remain true and passionate as we follow your son, Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, anoint us for the days in which we live. And Lord, even as you brought revival in Wesley's day and Whitfield's day, uh, Lord, may you do it in our day for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, amen. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. We look forward to uh, uh, being with you again next week. Spread this podcast far and wide if you would. We love your comments as well, so please uh, weigh in. uh, And we look forward to, to being together next Thursday. Until then, have a great week.